She began to walk forward, crunch, crunch, over the snow and through the wood toward the other light. In about ten minutes she reached it and found it was a lamp post. As she stood looking at it, wondering why there was a lamp post in the middle of a wood and wondering what to do next, she heard a pitter-patter of feet coming towards her. And soon after that, a very strange person stepped out from among the trees into the light of the lamp post. He was only a little taller than Lucy herself, and he carried over his head an umbrella white with snow. From the waist upwards he was like a man, but his legs were shaped like a goat's. The hair in them was glossy black. And instead of feet, he had goat's hoofs. He also had a tail, but Lucy did not notice this at first because it was neatly caught up over the arm that held the umbrella so as to keep it from trailing in the snow. He had a red woolen muffler around his neck, and his skin was rather reddish, too. He had a strange but pleasant little face with a short pointed beard and curly hair, and out of the hair there stuck two horns, one on each side of his forehead. One of his hands, as I have said, held the umbrella, and the other arm he carried several brown paper parcels. And with the parcels and the snow, it looked just as if he had been doing his Christmas shopping. He was a fawn. And when he saw Lucy, he gave such a start of surprise that he dropped all his parcels. Goodness gracious me, exclaimed the fawn. Good evening, said Lucy. But the fawn was so busy picking up its parcels that at first it did not reply. When it had finished, it made her a little bow. Good evening, good evening, said the fawn. Excuse me. I don't want to be inquisitive, but should I be right in thinking that you are a daughter of Eve? My name's Lucy, said she, not quite understanding him. But you are, forgive me, you are what they call a girl, said the fawn. Well, of course I'm a girl, said Lucy. You are in fact human. Of course I'm human, said Lucy, still a little puzzled. To be sure, to be sure, said the fawn. How stupid of me, but I've never seen a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve before. <laughs> What are we? Well, we're human beings. As Mr. Lewis points out so well in this excerpt from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I know it's supposed to be a kid's book, but you're really missing a treat if you, if you don't read it. You should read this book. Anyway, back to the sermon. We are human beings. Okay. What defines us as human beings? Well, I'm a human. Well, there are lots of humans. How are you the same? Why are you different? What makes you, you? Well, there's our gender. Okay, but how? I mean, beyond the obvious physiological differences that God created. By the way, the only first order created difference in humans is gender. That's it. Race, height, hair color, none of that comes close to this. But what is there beyond what we can see that defines our gender? What makes us human male or female? And do our bodies identify us in some other way? Our height, our weight, our health? Do people say the tall guy, the skinny girl, the athlete, or maybe the sickly one? You know, our good looks? That one just didn't come up a lot when people talked about me. <laughs> Then there's our mental acuity. Are you a brainiac? Or, for some, that Down syndrome kid. And if you're under 30 or over 60, your age is probably used to define you. 
That is what we are, but is it who we are? Can we be defined by our enemies? In 1976, two men jumped down onto a major league field during a lull in the game with the intent to burn a U.S. flag. They poured lighter fluid all over the flag and then lit a match to ignite it. But that match went out. (laughs) And before they could light another, outfielder Rick Monday rushed over and snatched the flag out of their grasp. He saves the American flag and is defined by his enemies from that moment on. And by the way, did you know that every September 11th, if you're at a major league ball game, instead of singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, everyone sings God Bless America because our enemies attacked us that day. Hmm. Is that who we are? Do our actions define who we are? The education we got or didn't? Is our job what people use to define us? Or good or bad deeds? How does our economic status play into this? In the first century, it was all but impossible to change your economic status. Sometimes people were killed for actually achieving it. Whatever economic condition you were born in, you stayed in. Is that you? And of course there's family. Some of us would really rather not be defined by our family of birth. (laughs) But others would shout it from the hilltops. And what if you, like our little grandson, are adopted? How does that define you? But is that really who we are? She's the old maid. He's had three wives. People describe us by our marital status. Who we are is reflected in our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. Is that truly who we are? And there's some hard ones. What about what has happened to us? Are you a victim of abuse? A friend of ours has a brother-in-law with a missing hand. His entire life is bisected by the accident. And here's a great one. Religion. Do you know many people will skip church rather than go to a church with a name Baptist in it? Or Presbyterian or Evangelical or whatever. Wow. I would advise avoiding Mormon and Jehovah's Witness or Christian Science churches, but does this define who they and who we are? And what happens when someone attacks or makes light of something that defines us? Are they attacking us? Remember, short people got no no reason to live. You know, what? (laughs) What if someone wants to change something that defines us? Luke records a struggle in the early church with identity. What defined them, now us, as Christians? This is, in fact, the turning point of Acts. The hinge on with which everything bends. Like when people first drive across country to visit us. You know, they get, they go from across one of the passes from eastern Washington to western Washington, from the dry side to the wet side, from the brown side to the green side. You know, everything changes. This is that point. And in the early church, a change much more dramatic occurred. From now on, its primary focus is Gentile evangelism on Christ without Moses. From now on, faith is redefined 
what it means to be a God-fearer has changed. And how the Jews, who provided the cradle into which the church was born, react to this change is at the core of this critical drama. So Luke first carefully sets up one of the major players, Peter. He defines Peter in a specific way. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, Peter performed thousands of miracles. Thousands. Why record this one? <laughs> well, simple. Did this remind you of anything in particular? Ah, yes. Jesus' miracle at Bethesda where he healed a man who had been paralyzed for years. He told him to pick up his bed as well, remember? And notice the amazing result. The residents of those twin cities turned to the Lord in mass. But the Holy Spirit guided Luke to immediately put in another great miracle of Peter's. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Cool miracle, but why record this miracle? The only way you could miss the ties to Jesus' raising of Lazarus was if you never heard this of Jesus' miracle. If you never heard that story. They sent for Peter before she was dead, asking him to hurry down, just like with Jesus and Lazarus. He gets there too late. She's already dead, like with Jesus and Lazarus. People are weeping as they did at the earlier funeral. He prays first, like Jesus. He calls her name to effect the miracle, just as Jesus loudly called out, Lazarus, come forth. Luke's readers could not possibly have missed the point. The miracles of Peter recorded here were designed to show Peter's close ties to Jesus. That he and the other apostles acted for Jesus and were his representatives. In fact, that they inherited his authority. That's why Luke, driven by the Holy Spirit, is trying to establish this so solidly. And why is this so important? Because God, through Peter, is about to redefine faith. He's about to show that the way a person had to approach God in the past is not the way a person has to now. And that will tear away almost everything that defined those Jews who were believers, both in their own eyes and in the eyes of those in the world. They thought they were believers because of their Jewishness. But he's going to rip that false image right out from under them. And when God is done, 
All that will be left is that which should define those who fear him. So those readers desperately need a clear understanding of who Peter is and why he has this authority. And it won't hurt us either to find this out. We read the actual event that brought Gentiles into the church last week. Today, let's look at Peter's report to the Jewish believers concerning this event. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So, when Peter came, went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Hi, Peter! We're God-fearing people. God-fearing people obey the laws of Moses. That is what defines a God-fearing person. And you broke the rules. It isn't Christian to act like this. These are rules and we need to adhere to them. This isn't the way church is done. That's what these people are saying. And you know, they would have been right. If it was those actions that define what a Christian is. Basically, they were asking, if we start eating with Gentiles, what makes us the church? What makes us different from the world? So Peter outlines the story we read in chapter 10 with some fascinating emphasis. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me, Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now remember, this would have been repulsive to a Jew. Their food laws defined who they were. So the very idea of eating that food would have made them not hungry. <laughs> if you ignore these laws, then how can you call yourself a Jew anymore? Because that is what defines us. How will you define yourself at all if you don't have these things? We circumcise our boys. We do temple worship. We have to, or we have no distinction as a Jew. And at the time of the vision, Peter agreed. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean... Do not call common. Peter obeys the Jewish law as he has done all his life. That's what makes him who he is, right? But God says, I changed everything at the cross. It's not like it was anymore, Peter. By the way, <laughs> this is exciting. He'll once again change everything at the end of all things. The final change where good and evil will never again meet. And if that doesn't excite you, well, you need to get a pacemaker or something because your heart can't be beating. That's <laughs> very exciting stuff. All right. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house at which we were sent to me from Caesarea. This three thing, very Jewish thing, three times, three guys, big deal to the Hebrews. Well, and so is the heaven thing and the perfect timing. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Hey, wait a minute. Without distinction? In chapter 10, we are told the Spirit said, without hesitation. What's the deal? 
to Jews like Peter and the men he's talking to, the hesitation would be that they are Gentiles. You're not supposed to go with Gentiles. He should make a distinction between Jew and Gentile. So Peter says the Spirit said no distinction, and he's right. In the mind of the Jew, that's exactly what he meant. Now, of course, the Spirit also knew all of us Gentiles would be reading it too, so he used a word that we could understand as well. But think, you know, we have our religion, we have our work, our recreation, we mix them together. People with different careers who enjoy other types of recreation all go to the same church. People of widely varying faiths and pastimes work at the same place. You can find Catholics and Baptists and Buddhists and Mormons who are preachers and lawyers and bankers all hiking together. We don't care. We mix all this up. And by the way, this is a very good thing. You can ask me, I'll give you some details on it. But, but in the first century, nobody mixed anything. People of different religions never worked together, ever. Jews never visited with anyone else and nobody ever visited them. And you never, ever changed work. If your father was a carpenter, fisherman, baker, you were a carpenter, fisherman, baker. People were defined by what they did, but no more. Peter and six Jewish believers went into this Gentile's house and he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and said, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. An angel stood in his house. Obviously, it's okay for God's people to go in his house. The angel told him to ask Peter to come to his house and preach. Obviously, Peter not only could, but should do this. The angel said he would be saved and his whole household. Now, understand, these Jews might still be thinking, yeah, They'll get saved as soon as they get circumcised. <laughs> God stretched the laws, but only so they could become like us, right? Everyone really needs to be like us, right? Because what we are, what we do, is what a Christian is, right? Well, fasten your seatbelts, our little Jewish friends, because you're about to go for a ride. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning. Now, there is no way they saw this coming. Not the six that went with Peter when it happened, and certainly not the ones now listening in Jerusalem. It must have hit them like a freight train. Wait, they're not circumcised. How can the Spirit fall on them? In their minds, the only way to get to God was the way God outlined to Moses. Yeah, I know Jesus died for our sins, but you get to that through Moses, right? They thought the Jewish laws and behavior defined them as believers. In fact, defined believers. That they were given the Holy Spirit because they obeyed the laws of Moses. They didn't understand that this was only a step on the way to a greater move of God's. As Paul later wrote to the church at Rome, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Well, this was such a great chasm to jump that Peter needed to give the Jews there more. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? He reminds them of the word of the Lord that he had told them about earlier. Do you remember how Luke started this section? Establishing Peter's close relationship to Jesus. They hadn't heard Jesus utter those words. But Peter had. And given the miracles Peter had performed, they had no choice but to acknowledge these words are true. And it's all about the Spirit. And if the Spirit is given to Gentiles without their being circumcised, then the Lord himself established this new order. Later, Luke will talk about Jews who don't believe, who didn't believe. That's actually the whole rest of Acts. That's what the Jews are. But here he is talking about Christians. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They get it. It amazes me that they could make this leap. When the Jewish believers in Jerusalem heard that God brought the Gentiles into the church directly, they were shocked. How could God work this way? But when God, through Peter, laid it all out for them, they glorified God and welcomed these new believers into the church. It was not possibly easy. But they did right. Because they understood what Paul would later write. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen to the way the New Living Translation translators brought Paul's thought into English. Now remember, the words Paul wrote were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they have to be translated into English. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. In that society, well, and ours too, the three main categories that define people, race, economic condition, and gender are specifically dealt with here. None of these determine relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Don't try to define a person's relationship with Christ by these things. But they were so sure that they knew how God would work. You do the Jewish thing to come to God. But they were wrong. They were sure they knew how to define a believer but they didn't. So what does that have to do with us? That's a great story, Rick. Glad they got it right. The church got a great start. But what difference does it make for us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Are we too sure we know how God will work? 
Are we real sure we know what defines a believer? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Okay. What ought to define us as a new creature? Well, whatever it is, it should cause us to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is love. But what does that love look like? Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. As Jesus loved, we are to love. So if we have the love of Jesus, then we won't be offended when people do church differently than we are used to, as long as they love like Him. We won't be bothered when people who aren't like us come into the church and the fruit of the Spirit shows in their lives. If their cultures are different, their music... Did you know people walked out of the church when they first heard box music? Box music. Are you kidding me? And some did the same thing years later when Beethoven's worship music was first played. Sort of like what happens sometimes today. But we don't worry about people's clothes like we used to. But what if their lingo is strange? It'll be okay. As long as they also love as Jesus loved, we can love them. Maybe that's what we need to look at. How do you define a Christian? Well, by Christ, Rick, that's what the word means. Those who love like him are his. Very good. Well, how did he love? Back when they thought being a Jew was being a believer, Jesus told his disciples, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Can we serve? Can we give away our lives for others? Jesus gave himself away for me, for you. And you do want to be like him, right? I think that is the definition of who we are. We are the people who give themselves away for others. Well, the world says, watch out for number one. We say, one thing I will not do is to care for myself over others. Because that's not what Christ would do. The defining characteristic of those in the world, those going away from God, is me, myself, and I. <laughs> Why would you not care for yourself the most? That's stupid. Actually, I had a person say those exact words to me. For people of faith, the defining characteristic is self-sacrificial love for God and others with the understanding that God will take care of me while I take care of others. We don't have to take care of ourselves. That's God's job. And as He is 
creator and sustainer of the entire universe, I think he can handle the job somewhat better than I can. <laughs> what are we? All that other what we are stuff is great, fine. But as a believer in Christ, are we really self-sacrificing? What are we? Well, we're Christians, followers of Christ. So, who are we? Those who sacrifice themselves for others and place their trust in God, knowing that He will give us eternal life and reward us gloriously. Father, we all like this and we applaud it and we just are so happy to say that that's what we want to be and then we have to go out and live it. <laughs> it's real easy, right? Until we actually have to live this self-sacrificing love. And sometimes it's not hard. With our kids and our grandkids, yeah, it's not so hard to sacrifice ourselves. But then you bring in some rotten people. You say, do it right. I don't know, each situation is different, but somehow we have to sacrifice ourselves for those people. Wow, that's not easy. That's not easy at all. But somehow we have to show you to them because some of them are going to believe. And how are they going to believe if they don't see us living? Well, you. If they don't see us imitating your son. If we cannot be like Christ. We cannot be a Christian. How can they see Christ? He's left us here. And in your word, you made it clear, we're his body. We are literally his hands and feet right now. We have to do the work or it doesn't get done. That's your only plan. We don't have a plan B. We get to be Christ to the world. That's hard, hard to do. And to do the right way, not the easy way. Help us, Lord, to correctly and carefully sacrifice ourselves for other people in a way that shows them their son. Shows them you and your care for us. Maybe, just maybe, they'll join us and be believers in Jesus Christ as well. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. If you'd like to support us so we can do more, well, you'll have to work at it. We have no one-click button for giving on our webpage, southbeachhope.org. We are a tiny church in a small town and simply cannot afford either money or time to set up such a thing. But at least with our modern technology and with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and anyone around the world. Hopefully, we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture. <laughs>